This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and welcome to Season 9 of Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. It feels like it was just a few months ago that I first pitched the idea of a podcast at work, where we could explore issues related to wildlife and the environment through conversation. Since then, I've conducted hundreds of interviews and published episodes that are downloaded more than 100,000 times per year. I am thrilled to be doing another season of this show. Thank you to everyone who listens, downloads, and rates and reviews Defender Radio and The Switch. It means a ton to all of us at the Fur Bears. Rodents, mice, rats, squirrels, and the like are found all across Canada. At some point, pretty much every homeowner or building owner will be confronted by two little eyes, a twitchy nose, and need a solution. For a long time, rodenticides, poisons that target rodents, have been the norm. But issues related to the welfare of animals, especially secondary poisoning, have prompted many jurisdictions to implement bans on second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides and others. British Columbia is considering heavily restricting their use, and an opportunity for citizen engagement on this is available until June 19, 2022. To discuss rodenticides, the proposed regulatory changes, and what alternatives exist, the BC SPCA's Aaron Ryan joined Defender Radio. So we're going to talk about SGARs and rodenticide and all of these other things today, but I thought the greatest place to start would be, what are rodenticides and weren't these things banned at some point? Great question. I think a lot of people are still surprised to hear that a lot of these rodenticides, which are essentially poisons, are still very much legal. So rodenticides come in a couple different forms, but the most common one and the one that is the big subject of discussion is these second generation anticoagulant rodenticides or cigars. Mm -hmm. And the way that these work is anticoagulant means they prevent the blood from clotting. So essentially rodents slowly bleed out and die over several days or even weeks. It's unpleasant, uh, to say the very least. And if anyone has ever seen animals suffering from SGAR poisoning, it's not something that you forget. We've seen any animal suffering from any kind of poisoning. It sticks with you. But uh, as someone who works with the SPCA, you've got a lot of connections into wildlife rehab as well. I'd also like to right off the top talk about secondary poisoning. There is some discussion that I have heard, and I am not repeating it for the sake of believing it, because I think it's an interesting point to raise right off the top, is that it wouldn't be possible for a mammal to consume enough of the poison through secondary to actually cause them mortality, uh, cause their mortality or cause other major health issues. So what is secondary poisoning and how do we respond to assertions that it's not a thing? Right. So there's two different modes of poisoning, but primary poisoning is where the animals are actually eating it. So primary poisoning is what's happening to the mice and rats who eat the rodenticide. And secondary poisoning is what happens when animals like hawks, owls, and eagles, even coyotes, actually eat the poison rodents. And because rodents make up a large portion of diet for many of these animals, they end up eating not just one poison rodent, but many. And so this, this poison builds up in their system, and that's what actually causes this secondary poisoning. And unfortunately, what we see is that 
um, even if it's not the poison that kills them, there is a lot of these sublethal effects. So an owl that has eaten many poison rodents and is starting to feel unwell, all of a sudden it's not necessarily poison that's killing them, but they're now more likely to be involved in a vehicle collision, uh, collide with windows, they're more likely to be grounded and caught by other predators. So a lot of times these secondary poisonings go completely unnoticed. Mm -hmm. And arguably, as I recall from some research I did many, many years ago on uh, road strikes and cats, uh, you're not going to see them where they necessarily, like, they are going to try and get away from where they might be seen. So the true volume of impact might be unknown at times. It can be very hard to, to know how many animals out there are currently being afflicted by this kind of secondary poisoning, I would imagine. Exactly. And for example, an owl that's been hit by a car, they're going to list the cause of death as being hit by a car rather than mm -hmm. doing any type of testing to see if they consume rodenticides. There's also of yeah. the issue of testing itself. It's expensive. It's not standard. It's not something that, you know, just happens. And for, for example, wildlife rehabilitation centers, they are, most of them are nonprofit charitable societies that can't necessarily afford to be doing all of this expensive testing just to see if an owl that was killed by a vehicle collision also had rodenticide in their system. Yeah, so we know it's a problem, but in a very frightening way, we don't necessarily know how widespread it is. And that makes me think of some of the things that we hear about in this regard as well, like um, secondary, I can't remember what it's called, but it's microplastics effectively getting into mammals at this point because it is so they have so thoroughly integrated themselves into the environment uh, from so, how many of them. And it, it gives me that same, oh, no, how far have we gone kind of, but... There is, I think, sort of hope on the, the horizon regarding cigars. But before we get to that, I do want to address rodent control, because this is a subject that I think can be very ethically contentious. Uh, and as we will talk about with some of the government issues coming up, there's a lot of applications where we do need to in some way control uh, bacterial transfer, viral transfer, damage to power infrastructure. I would even say it's sort of like with beavers. We we recognize that there is damage that can be caused, but there's solutions, I think, uh, particularly with beavers, and I believe with rodents. So rather than going out and spreading huge amounts of poison in bait stations all over the place, or um, even at times trying to lure to bait stations uh, to try and get more, what, what kind of options are out there for managing rodent related issues i think you touched on it in a good point is that for too far too long the default has been assessing hey yep there's mice and rats here and then following the formula to say this building is this big we need this many bait stations and we're just going to fill out their identified monthly mm -hmm. and that comes without any of that integrated pest management approach where you're not looking at why the problem exists, where are rodents getting in, how are they causing damage, what are they attracted to, and trying to address all of those things. And I get it because for a lot of you know standard pest control companies, this is their bread and butter, is charging this monthly fee to just come by for 15 minutes and fill up every bait station on the property and then leave. So they're not actually taking that time to find out what they can do to solve the rodent problem. And so I think in terms of other control methods, that's where that first step happens, is that prevention and exclusion. So before any rodents have even got in, and this is something I encourage all business owners, all homeowners to do, is to look at a preventative inspection, inspection 
and say, hey, where are we vulnerable to rodents and how can we keep them out? I think it also means making a commitment in some regards and making it a priority because I, I have been around some industries where people don't like the fact that they have to treat for mice, as it's called, uh, in a very ubiquitous way. Um, you know, it's, it's a very gentle term for putting down poison. Um, but they accept, well, we have to keep this door open because the HVAC system here can't handle the heat and it's unsafe. And they find themselves in these situations. Is there a, a, an opportunity there for us to say, well, we need to help find solutions to that as well? Like, is, is it not just saying don't use cigars, but then starting to look into maybe are there these patterns that we can see? And I would think an example is uh, from my world, maybe with, um, you know, bear or coyote contact. So the first thing we ask is, OK, so where's the food? And were they here before and you put a house down on top of it or have they migrated here because of development over there? And taking that very holistic approach to try and understand the situation, is that an opportunity as well in a commercial application or is it going to be constantly a battle of it just costs too much? I think it's tricky because the cost is always going to look higher up front. But mm -hmm. I think, yes, it absolutely has applications in a commercial setting. and it does require a fundamental change to their business model. Because as yeah. I've said right now, a lot of a lot of operators, even that I've talked to, are frustrated because you know their boss expects them to hit this many locations in a day and get this many monthly contracts because that's how they make their money. Versus if the company takes some time to reimagine what that could look like, it might mm -hmm. mean they're they're doing shorter contracts, but for more money and for more time. So they're actually seeking time with a customer and visiting their site and going through and saying, you know, I need to understand your operations and how food is moved for the facility, how food is stored, what potential entry points. And as you say, when you run into roadblocks, like, um, you know, this door needs to stay open. Well, why does it need to stay open? How can we try to mitigate that effect? How can we keep uh, this out of the way? I think you're quite right as well that maybe this is a move away from the the traditional business model for a lot of these companies, but there's also a significant amount of opportunity. I mean, here in Hamilton, everything is falling apart all of the time. If you can not only show, hey, we'll try and keep mice or rats out, but we'll come by every quarter and do a check and make sure that there's no entry points. Like I, I have to imagine there's opportunity there and then those same skills get applied to the greater conversation uh, through something like animal kind of wildlife removal, humane wildlife removal, sorry, or for us, the beaver coexistence. You, Those are the same tools just on a larger scale in some ways. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it may require fundamental rethinking, but it could also open so many avenues that are exciting. I agree. I see this as a huge business potential. I don't think the industry has fully understood how much money I think people would pay for preventative rodent services to say, hey, come check out my house and rodent-proof my house. People would pay for that. The government of British Columbia is considering heavily restricting second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides and has an opportunity for people to comment. And it involves a really interesting, um, I'm just looking for the correct term here, uh, intentions paper. Uh, that considers a science review, regulatory gap analysis, and a jurisdictional scan of how cigars are regulated internationally. 
the fur bears is supporting a lot of the information in this intentions paper, though we have some reservations. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on it and what people can do to get involved in supporting this change. Yeah, I think that's a very good opinion to have is that very supportive. I personally still have some reservations mm -hmm. with the system, but overall, this is a monumental step and something that I was not convinced I was going to see in my lifetime, to be honest. So I think it's it just goes to show how much public support is already behind this initiative. I know the minister's order in July last year showed showed that there were municipalities all across BC who were banning the use of redundancies on the municipal property just because they understood the risks to wildlife and how valuable those wild animals were to them and how they wanted to see humane alternatives. So this uh, phase of the engagement with the government, this is their intentions paper. So it outlines the future direction that they want to take with making actual changes to the integrated pest management or IPM regulations. Mm -hmm. I think this is so important that the public take 10 minutes to speak up, uh, browse through the paper, take the survey and comment. So that is publicly open, and I believe comments are accepted until June 19th. Yes, and uh, we at the Fur Bears have a site, or sorry, a page about it, and I believe the BCSBCA does. Those will both be linked for people who want to take action and learn more. And we're also, uh, at this point, our, our response should be online by the time this uh, lands on podcast feeds. One of the elements I found very interesting about this entire process was identifying that there are more opportunities to reduce rodent issues or issues related to rodents and that uh, as we have said or sorry as you have said the need for this integrated pest management plan has to start addressing those um that to me seems like a significant move from a government any government in canada frankly on an issue of wildlife and rodent control uh do you think it is a sign of more good things to come? Do you think it is a sign that the science is just so clear? How, how do you interpret some of that element of it? I hope that's the case. Um, it's certainly true that the science is overwhelmingly in favor that these cigars have devastating impacts to local wildlife. And there's a lot of risks that we don't know about. So as part of some of my master's research, um, finding out that songbirds are increasingly at risk because this product is accumulating in insects. We may start seeing impacts on fish because redundancy particles are being found in suspended particulate matter in water systems. So I'm hopeful that this is a sign of more to come, and I'm hopeful that other provinces will see the steps that BC is making and that they'll soon follow suit. It, it certainly would be ideal for that to be how all of it plays out. Um, there's a lot of regulations currently surrounding cigars in BC, and there's a lot of proposed regulatory changes. If someone wants to really dig in on that, where could they look or where should they look? Yeah, I think what a lot of people don't know is that there's not a lot of regulation within the pest control industry. So there are these tight oh, regulations wow. on these poisons. But when it comes to things like snap traps, glue traps, live traps, those are available to anyone. You don't have to be a pest control operator. And to be a pest control operator, um, you do need a special pesticide applicator license to use rodenticides. But if you choose not to use rodenticides, you only need a business license. 
So a lot of members of the public can buy these glue traps and snap traps, but they don't necessarily have the knowledge on what to do if an animal's trapped and not killed. So they don't know, you know, emergency euthanasia methods, or they don't have a plan for what to do next. And I can tell you, I've been on the receiving end of phone calls from distressed people who have caught a mouse or a rat in a glue trap, and they don't know what to do next. And it's distressing. Absolutely. So I think it's important that people speak up uh, in support of these regulations and making sure that, you know, the most dangerous tools are limited to professionals. Now, there there will be a lot of criticism about this, I think. Uh, as we've discussed, there's going to be, I think, the obvious question of, well, what are we supposed to do when we do have mice or we do have rats? Because we've talked a lot about prevention and um, a lot of the content the BCSPCA has and we have is focused on that. But there is the reality that, you know, mice and rats and rodents will get in. How do we deal with that when it happens? So there's a number of different options, all with varying levels of humaneness. Mm -hmm. So I know as part of this consultation, the government is promoting alternative methods. And what we're kind of pushing back on is just making sure that those alternative methods are humane. Yeah. Because one of the next most commonly used tools next to rodenticides is something like glue traps, mm -hmm. which scientifically across the board have been considered markedly inhumane. Animals will remain alive at least up to 24 hours, if not more. And there's significant injuries. And of course, these are non-discriminatory traps. And I know wildlife rehabilitators are cringing all over the country yep. um, who have treated birds and reptiles and all kinds of animals that have gotten stuck in these traps. I know there was a case even in Kelowna where a kitten was stuck in a blue trap. Oh. And thankfully, Lola was humanely extracted and happily adopted, but it's a very scary situation. Um, there's also, there is live trapping is an option. Mm -hmm. I know personally that would be my first approach if I had my rats in my home. Um, but also doing all those steps in conjunction with trapping, making sure that I've eliminated the food sources, I've excluded any entry points, prevented them from coming back. But I know that live trapping is hard unless there's really significant human effort. Mm -hmm. I, for example, am willing to put in that effort in my own home. But when it comes to larger scales, it, it requires a lot of person power to do it right. And there's also easy ways to get it wrong. Yeah. So rodents, because they're so small, they're very susceptible to environmental stress and time, you know, trapped too long uh, can be quite inhumane as well. When it comes to snap traps, I know that's a common tool and I, I'm a little bit torn when it comes to snap traps. They certainly can produce a very quick and very humane death if they're sufficiently powered and if they're appropriately placed. Mm -hmm. Of course, we see lots of cases similar to glue traps where animals are stuck in these traps because they're just placed outdoors or out in the open where anybody can get into them. And I've seen, you know, horrible cases of birds, raccoons getting their paws stuck in there. So I advocate for the use of snap traps uh, enclosed in those bait stations. So they're actually locked. They're designed so that mostly only mice and rats can get in. But it's it's tough because the performance of those traps varies so widely. Yeah, there's really interesting research coming that has come out of the UK 
showing the difference in spring power between any two random brands of traps is significant. And if they're not appropriately powered, you can get a lot of non-lethal injury, which leads to suffering. So I would like to see, and I hope this change is in the future, some sort of regulation on snap traps and making sure that they're appropriately powered and there's some type of trap testing mechanism in place. Yeah, I think uh, we also see a lot of the the larger plastic ones being used now. And I know those have been a nightmare for the exact same reasons you just listed of they're just put down with some kind of bait nearby or near the entrance to some kind of hole. And any animal can trigger them and they cause horrific injuries that don't kill and just cause suffering. And unfortunately, as you note, some of these devices can perform in certain circumstances. However, the reliability of that is unknown. The ability of the user to properly do it is unknown. And any amount of, you know, response or consequence to it not being done properly is entirely on an animal. Um, and I can say, you know, talking about using uh, uh, humane removal options, I was in a century-old house for a while, uh, a few years, and never had a problem. And then my upstairs neighbor kind of disappeared for three months. And I was in the basement of this unit. And I'd say within a week of this neighbor disappearing, I started hearing stuff in the ceiling. And I didn't know if it was pipes tickling along, because that, of course, happened too in the middle of the night or, or something else. Finally figured out it's definitely mice. There's now, you know, evidence in my unit of mice after a couple of weeks. So I got two uh, tilt traps. And these are just simple little devices that are um, partially covered or partially colored. So they're not as easy to see through in and out of lots of ventilation holes. And it's that simple concept of mouse walks in to get a treat and gets stuck. And I certainly hear it right away. Uh, again, it was a small space and I work from home. So I'd, I'd see as soon as it would happen or the longest it would be is maybe six hours while I was asleep. Mm -hmm. And then outside they go and off into the night or the morning or whatever it may be. And people say, well, they'll just come right back. They didn't. It's just bottom line. You know, I was able to remove them. I took a look around at any entryways and a visit to a dollar store for um, uh, steel wool to plug in some gaps and all of a sudden there's no access to my unit for rodents. There's nothing upstairs for them. I remove any that I was able to before blocking the access and they didn't come back. You know, like it is possible, but as you said, it does require effort. And I think that's what we're learning about all of these issues with animals is we can do better. It just means we need to change our focus a little bit or reframe the way we're looking at the world from us and everything else to all of us. So folks who do want to take action on a broader scale, we of course have the BC thing and uh, the, uh, the paper that we want folks to write in about, but moving forward, if someone wants to bring up this issue in their municipality or in their home or at a business, uh, as you've noted, you know, if you're a pest control operator or worker and you're looking for change, or you uh, are an apartment superintendent and don't like the fact that you have to put down poison in some areas, what can people do to kind of learn more and move themselves forward as part of the solution uh, towards ending rodenticide use and looking to long-term humane solutions? Well, they can certainly look to BC as a model if they're coming from other provinces. And I know, again, a lot of that change that has happened was because of public pressure and public support. So it started with community members writing to their elected officials or their municipality and saying, hey, I don't want to see rodenticides in my community. These are harming 
wild animals and they're inhumane. And we saw a lot of municipalities take that on. And thankfully, whether you're in BC or elsewhere, uh, you can visit our Animal Kind website at animalkind.ca, which will be linked in the show notes, has tons of resources for, for municipalities and also resources for stratas. So even if you're a rental or you own, you can talk to your strata, you can talk to your property management company, you can talk to your landlord and, and share some of these resources to say this is how we can go poison free. Links for the BC SPCA's pages on rodenticides, animal kind, and how you can take action on rodenticides are available in the show notes for this week's episode or at DefenderRadio.com. I want to thank Erin for sharing her time and all of you for listening. Please rate and review Defender Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help us grow the show and spread messages of coexistence, compassion, and education even further. Remember to follow the Fur Bears on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates on campaigns and new episodes of the show. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>